please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2. We've been doing a series on 1 Peter, talking specifically about a living hope, a living hope. 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to begin at verse number 4. Hear now the words of the living God. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. And once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you, sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh that wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that, they, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Well, all flesh is as grass, and the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord shall endure forever. And this is the word that will be proclaimed unto you. Amen and amen. Well, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, this is your word, and I'm thankful for that. These are not my words. These are not the words of some philosopher. These are not the words of some public intellectual. These are your words. And because of that, we are called to give attention to them. I thank you that your words are true, yes, and amen. I thank you that your words give life, and life more abundantly. Lord, these are also your people, and so I pray that you might take your word and cement it in their hearts. And so bless us now in Jesus' precious holy name, amen and amen. This last week, I started reading um, a book um, in preparation for a sermon series next year. And yes, you know, you have to start early. But um, the book is entitled Change into his likeness, a biblical theology of personal transformation. 
And also, I started reading an article. I read the article, and it's by Condé Mass, and it's called Psychologists Are Learning What Religion Has Known for Years. Both articles, oh, sorry, the article and the book, both try and do the same thing. They talk about how difficult it is for us to change. And one of the things that the book and the article said is that um, psychologists, their whole entire profession is designed to help people who are struggling with uh, trials and testings and tribulations in their life. That, that these people, when they go to a psychologist or when they go to a psychiatrist, they're trying to get help. And one of the things that the psychologists have said over and over again, the most maddening thing and frustrating thing, is that they can teach people tools, they can give people tools, they can teach people or train people certain techniques, but the one thing they cannot do is they cannot change a person's nature. And for many of these psychologists and for many of these people, this is so frustrating because as they try to help people, one of the things that they realize is that they can't truly help people unless these people have had their natures changed. And they said that one of the things that they realize is that they, there's nothing they can do to change a person's nature. And there's also no drug, no technique, nothing that can change the nature of a person. And so now what they're doing is looking at religion. Why is that? Well, Peter tells us why that is. Because as Peter said at the very beginning of his letter, his pastoral letter to these people, he says that they are given a new nature. Peter says that you and I who believe in the name of Jesus Christ, we have been changed. Anaganao, he uses it twice. He says that you and I have been born again. And what does it mean to be born again? It means that we were given a new nature. Notice what he says in verse number three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy caused us to be born again. In other words, caused you to be given a new nature. And then if you look at verse number 22 and 23, Peter says that having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. What is Peter harping on from the very beginning of his letter? What is Peter saying? Peter's saying is, is this, if, if you and I are going to undergo trials well, if you are going to make it through the fire, that is the trials of life, if you are going to make it through the pain and suffering of this world, you had better be born again. Your nature has to be changed. Because if your nature isn't changed, you will be burned up by bitterness, anger, and frustration. There's no doubt about it. And unless that nature is revealed in holy living. That's what we learned last week. Unless that nature produces holy living in the midst of the trial, you still will be burned up by bitterness, 
anger and frustration. There's no doubt about it. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And by the way, what does it mean to be born again? It doesn't simply mean that you have made a profession of faith. It means simply that you are in possession of faith. And that you understand that and that is lived out in your life each and every day. That's Peter's point at the very beginning. That you and I simply, when we come to church or when we participate in the body of Christ, that unless you know that you are born again, that you've had your nature changed, that you are fundamentally different, you will be burned up by life's trials. And listen, when you have your nature changed, there is something different about you. You just don't look like the world. Uh, recently, somebody sent me uh, some, some stuff, and I had to end up going to YouTube. And you know, when you watch one video on YouTube, they kind of suggest another video on YouTube. And then 30 minutes later, you're watching four videos on YouTube. But the one video that was suggested to me after I watched the video that I was sent was a video about a young lady who had uh, surgery on her ear to allow her to hear for the first time. And when she had that surgery, they were trying to calibrate that thing on her ear. And, and when they had it to where she can hear, her husband blurted out, I love you. And she immediately started crying. I mean, she started crying. And then I watched another video where they did the same thing to somebody, and they started crying. Then I watched another video where they did the same thing to somebody, and then they started crying. And after about 10 videos, it became pretty predictable that they were going to start crying. But I didn't catch on to that on the first video. And so YouTube kind of wasted 30 minutes of my time. But it's okay, because you know what I realized as I watched all of those people crying? They were crying tears of joy. Why were they crying tears of joy? Because something about their nature changed. And they can hear things differently for the first time. I also watched another video of somebody who was colorblind, having colorblind glasses, and they could see colors for the first time. And they cried tears of joy. And there were all these people on the internet where some aspect of their nature had been changed, and they cried tears of joy. Why? Because they were experiencing the world in a completely new way. So brothers and sisters, hear me. I, I want you to understand what Peter is saying. That unless your nature has been changed, and you now walk in light of that, you will be burned up by the trials of this world. There's no doubt about it. And so often, there are some of us that are hear the gospel, hear the gospel, hear the gospel, and that never really sinks in. But Peter wants us to know, over and over again, he repeats this phrase, anaganal, anaganal. Why is he repeating that? Because he wants you to know that being born again is central, is central to your life as a, per as a believer and as a person. Because unless you've been born again, you will be burned up by the trials. There's no amount of psychological techniques. There's no amount of life hacks. There's nothing in this world that can insulate you from the pressures and trials and testings of this world with having your nature change in the gospel. Now today, what are we going to look at? Well, briefly, 
I want to look at the fact that Peter, all these people that are undergoing trials and testings and tribulations, Peter moves away from talking about their nature, what is essential to their nature, that they are born again, and he starts talking to them about what they're called to do. And notice what Peter says that they're called to do. You have to sort of wade through the first portion of the chapter to get it, but look at verse number 9. Peter goes from talking about who they are in Christ to say, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? Why is that the case? Why has Christ changed your nature? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What is Peter doing here? It's brilliant, actually. And and actually, it's counterintuitive. Here's what Peter is doing. Peter is saying that even in the midst of trials and testings and tribulations, each and every one of us still have a task to do. And it is counterintuitive. If someone is in the midst of a trial or testing or tribulation, you don't want to give them things to do. They're hurting. But Peter says, no. Actually, your trials and your testings and your tribulations does not negate the work that God has set before them. And by the way, we saw this in the book of Jonah. Jonah spent three nights and three days in the belly of the whale. And when the whale spat him out, what would you expect to happen to Jonah? Immediately, Jonah should have been taken to a hospital to deal with his burns. Right? The stomach acid by by the whale. You know, Jonah should have gotten some time off. But what does the Bible say? Did Jonah get time off? No. In fact, right after Jonah got spit out of the whale, he was told to go to Nineveh and proclaim the excellencies of him who brought him out of darkness and into light. Hear me today. It doesn't matter what trial or testing or tribulation you're going through right now. The task before each and every one of us is to proclaim the excellencies of him who brought us out of darkness into light. Now that happens in different ways. And that happens to different degrees. But it still needs to happen. And what I want to look at today is I want to look at what or who we are called to proclaim. Who we are called to proclaim. Next week, I'll look at what we are called to proclaim. But both of these are right in here. First of all, he says we need to proclaim Christ. And then next, we need to proclaim what Christ has done for us. And we'll talk about that next week. We'll talk about what Christ has done for us next week. But today, I want to look at who we are called to proclaim. Who we are called to proclaim. Now, in verse number 9, Peter says that we are called to proclaim him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. In other words, Peter says, we are to proclaim a person. That's the him, is a person. Now hear me today, because this is so important. We're not called to proclaim an ideology. We're not called to proclaim a philosophy. We're not called to proclaim a theory. But we are called to proclaim a person. And by the way, we are not called to proclaim a dead person. We're actually called to proclaim a living person. Someone who actually lives. And Peter makes this point all over in his letter thus far. Notice verse number three. We're born to a living hope. 
And then in verse number 23, we're born again by the living and abiding word of God. And then if you drop down to our passage in verse number 4, Peter says that Christ is the living stone. Over and over again in the passage, Peter says that we are called to proclaim a Christ who is living. So when you and I suffer temptations, when we uh, suffer trials, when we suffer in this world, we're not suffering on behalf of someone who is dead. We're suffering on behalf of someone who is alive. There's a song that I, uh, we used to sing at a church that I attended. And it said this, I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he's living no matter what man may say. I see his hand of mercy. I hear his voice, of, uh, voice so clear. And just the time I need him, he's always near. He lives, he lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and he talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives salvation to impart. Salvation to impart. What does that mean? That means that unless Christ is, is alive, there is no living hope. There is no living word. There's no living stone. Brothers and sisters, friends, we don't quote the words of a dead man or a dead theologian. I remember when I was in seminary, we would have, uh, sometimes on a Saturday night, we would say, we're going to study the dead theologians. Well, that's interesting. You know, it's good to read the works of people that have gone before us. But we are not studying the words of a dead theologian. We are not putting our faith in a dead man. And we don't follow after a dead person. We follow after someone who is alive. He's alive. He's here. Yesterday, we, um, we had a men's Bible study. And it meets every Saturday. For those of you that want to join, you're welcome to come. But as we went through this men's Bible study, we were talking about union with Christ. What does it mean to be in union with Christ? And after the Bible study, one of the things that hit me is this. You cannot be in union with a dead person. You cannot have fellowship with someone who is dead. That just doesn't happen. My mother, uh, two years ago, died. And every now and then, I will read things that she wrote. Every now and then, I would remember things that she said. And every now and then, I could hear her voice to some degree. I could picture her voice in my mind. But you know what I can't do with my mother? I cannot have fellowship with her. And hear me today, if you believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and personal Savior, you need to know and understand that you are in relationship with somebody that is living. And when you proclaim the gospel, you, are, you proclaim the gospel as if Jesus Christ is alive. Read through the New Testament. In fact, re yeah, read through the New Testament. One of the things that strike you over and over again is when the apostles talked about Jesus, they always talked about Jesus in the present tense. Isn't that glorious? They talked about Jesus as if he was alive. And by the way, this is what separates Christianity from every other religion. We believe that Jesus Christ is alive and therefore we proclaim it as if he's alive and therefore we live 
as if Jesus Christ is alive. Now, you might say, well, Pastor Dennis, why is it so important for us to proclaim a living Savior? Because in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us that if Christ is dead, then we are dead as well. If Christ has not been risen from the dead, if he is not alive, if he is not risen from the dead, that means that your faith is meaningless. In fact, Paul says that we should all leave this place today, go home, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's why it's important for you to believe that Christ is alive. Because when you leave this place today, we are not just doing a memorial service. We're actually doing a service because we believe that he's alive, and therefore when we leave this service, we act as if Christ is with us. And that, friends, changes everything. Because if you honestly believe that Christ is alive, then everything about the way you live and move and have your being changes, completely changes. Now, notice what Peter says about Christ. He gives an illustration of Christ. Not just that he's the living stone, but in this passage, look at verse number six. Peter says, for it stands in scripture, so he he mentions Christ as being the living stone, and then he gives justification for that. He says, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. What does that mean? It means this. He says that Christ is our cornerstone. Cornerstone. I love that illustration by, by, by Peter, and here's why. A cornerstone was a big, massive stone that they would hewn out, shave up, and they would put it as the foundation of a building. They would either put it up to the corner, or they would use this entire stone structure as a building. If you go to Rock City, I've often thought about this. As you walk through Rock City, there are some stones big enough to be a cornerstone. These massive stones, they weigh tons, hundreds of tons. And they would shave off the edges, and they would lay them as a slab, and they would build things on it. That was what the cornerstone is. And what is Peter saying when he gives the definition of a cornerstone? He's saying that as Christ is your cornerstone, we are built up and rooted on him. He marks out the edges of our life. And we build our faith, and our trust uh, properly on him. Now, the reality of this cornerstone hit me when we lived in Mississippi and I was in seminary. Um, There was a store that we would often go to. We loved shopping there. And one day I walked in and I saw that they were closing down. I was like, man, this is awful. And then I noticed that all of the things on the shelf were like half price or lower. So this is great. And so I started shopping. And then, uh, as I was walking around, I went over to the guy, uh, and I kind of knew him a little bit. I said, hey, man, I'm so sad that you all are closing. What's up? And he says, oh, the building is condemned. I said, wait a minute. The building is condemned, and you still have us coming in here? And so, at that time, I didn't protest because the prices were really good. And so I went, we done shopping. But before I left, I said, hey, You know, as I look at this building, I don't see anything wrong with the building. Like, you know, it's not like the walls are falling down or anything else is going on. He says, oh, you can't see it. He said, but but there's something actually wrong with the foundation. The foundation is cracked. The building is going to implode. 
and we're a little ways off, but we need to get everything out, destroy the building, rip up the foundation, and lay a new one. Hear me today. When Peter says that Christ is our cornerstone and that we have to proclaim him as the cornerstone, he's saying this, that unless Jesus Christ is the foundation, not just of your life in the generic sense, but in everything that you do, then your spiritual house or your life in general will come crumbling down. He is the actual cornerstone of our life. And by the way, Jesus makes this clear in the parable of, of the, the two men that build their house upon the sand. One builds their house upon the sand, and the other one builds their, their house on a rock. Jesus here is not talking about housing options and building codes. What he's talking about here is this. You as an individual, what do you build your life around? What maps out the area of your life on an individual basis? Is it going to be the teachings of Jesus Christ, where you follow them and live in light of them, or is it going to be your own life and what you think is right? You know, for some people, the cornerstone is a blessing, but Peter says here, to some people, the cornerstone is a stumbling block. If you notice in verse number seven, he says, so the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's for us who believe. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to. What is Peter saying? That, that Christ is your cornerstone. Either he's going to be a blessing to you or he's actually going to be a stumbling stone to you. What does it mean that he's going to be a stumbling stone? Now, if you notice in verse number eight, there's one word, stumbling, and then later on, that's at the very beginning, and then at the end, they stumble because they obey the word. Those are two separate words. The first word for stumbling is the word scandalon, uh, which has the idea of this is an impediment for your life, that Christ is actually being a stumbling block. But the other one is different. The other one has the idea that Christ is getting in your way. And so you're kicking against the stone because Christ is getting in the way of your life. And beloved, both things are true in the Bible. For some people, Christ is an impediment for them, but others, Christ is that thing that gets in the way of their life. There are three areas that I've noticed, and this is just me, but there's three areas that I notice that the world tells us no one can have control over but us. And here they are, our body, our money, and our time. If you, if you look at the world that we live in today, if you pick up the newspaper, if you look on the internet, everywhere you go, there are three things the world tells us. Nobody has the right to tell you um, how to live in these areas. Our bodies, our money, and our time. You always hear people say this. It's my body. I can do whatever I want with it. Or you always hear people say from time to time, this is my money, and I can spend it however I want. Or you often hear people say from time to time, this is my time. If I want to waste it or do whatever I want to do with it, that's fine. I should be allowed to do that. 
But here's the issue. If you are building your life on Christ and he's marking out your life and how you should live, your body does not belong to you. It belongs to him. Your money does not belong to you. It belongs to him. And your time doesn't belong to you. It belongs to him. Do you, do you begin to see now how all-encompassing the Christian life truly is? When you come to church, this is just us reminding ourselves of who God is and what he's done. But when you leave this church building, you are, your life should still be marked out by the cornerstone. And no Christian should ever say to themselves that this is my body, I could do whatever you want with it, because your body has been redeemed. In other words, Christ has paid for you by his precious blood. No Christian should ever walk out of here and say, this is my money. I work for it. I could do whatever I want with it. No. Your money, everything you own belongs to Christ. He's marked out what that looks at. Every Christian, when you leave here, you shouldn't say, this is my time. If whatever I want to do with my time, I'm going to do it. No, sir. If you are a believer, your time is mapped out by what Jesus Christ has said. Why? Because he is the cornerstone. Everything should be built up and rooted in him. And that is the excellent message that we are called to proclaim to the world. One of the most heart-wrenching things for anyone to see is someone who is clueless about how to live their life. They have no plan. They have no hope. They have no prospect. They're just aimlessly walking through life. And one of the great things that we have as the church is that we get to proclaim a Christ who is a cornerstone, who has our lives mapped out. And if we build our life upon him and him alone, there is joy and blessing and hope, true hope. There is no hope in living your life however you want. That's bondage. But there is great hope in building your life upon Christ. In fact, on the Day of Atonement, Jews would often sing uh, verse number 7 and verse number 8. Both of those are a part of Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the scorn of stone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They would sing this, but there's another part of this song that they would sing as well, and it's further down. And actually, it's a song that we sing often. Um, at least children sing it, and it's this. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. How many of you remember singing that? Of course, it's well known. That comes from this same text, Psalm 118, that Peter is quoting here. And the point of saying this is the day, Peter isn't just talking about any day. Peter is talking about the day that Christ became the stone, the cornerstone that the builders rejected. Christ became the salvation for his people. That day, that day when he secured salvation so that we can build our spiritual house upon him. That day is the day that God has made and all of us inside here ought to rejoice and be glad in it because that's the day we got a pattern for our lives that we can live on and build on and be rooted and grounded on. Now, what is the big takeaway? The big takeaway is simply this, that we are called to proclaim the excellencies of Christ as our cornerstone. That's a glorious message and a message that we should give to the world. In the next few moments, we are going to partake of the Lord's Supper.
We talked about it in our Sunday school. And as we proclaim, as we take the Lord's Supper, we are told, we are called to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That as we partake of the Lord's Supper, what are we doing? We are proclaiming the excellencies of him who brought us out of darkness into his marvelous light. There is something mystic and wonderful and beautiful about partaking of the Lord's Supper that as we take it, as we partake of it, we are proclaiming Christ to ourselves, to our children, to our spouse, to everyone inside you. We're proclaiming Christ, and then also we're proclaiming it to the world. Because as we partake of it in faith, we are telling the world that we believe we are not just doing this in memory of a dead Savior, but we're doing this in, in, as if we are participating right now and fellowshipping with a Savior that actually lives. That's the glorious part of the gospel that we proclaim. Now, some of you say, well, Pastor Dennis, I don't know if I could proclaim a gospel. Of course you can. Of course you could proclaim a gospel. And what's interesting to me, I had a friend, I didn't say this, I had a friend that said this. He said that after this past year and a half, nobody can tell me that they cannot proclaim the gospel because everyone has been proclaiming what they thought about COVID, masks, and everything else. He said, the jig is up. He said, you know, I used to talk to people and I said, I can't talk about the gospel. I can't talk about Jesus and what he did for me. But apparently everybody on the internet and privately can tell you what they believe about masks, about the efficacy of masks and, and vaccinations and all these things, but then they tell me that they can't talk about the gospel. Absolutely they can. Now, I didn't say that. My friend said that. But I've got to tell you, I actually agree with him. Right? Everybody has an opinion on that, but we're not called to actually have an opinion on that. Do you know that? Nowhere in the Bible are you called to have an opinion on that. But here's what you're called in the, in the Bible to believe and do. Proclaim the excellencies of him who brought you out of darkness. Where? Into light. And you get to do that right now through partaking of the Lord's Supper. Do it with joy. Do it with anticipation so the world can see that we are truly those that are believers. And we are truly those who have been born again unto a living hope. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much. That we as your people, indeed, have been given the right and the privilege to proclaim you. Lord, next week we're going to see how we have been partakers of the glory of your redemption and salvation by you giving us a new status. As living stones, as royal priesthood, Lord, and we look forward to that. What a glorious reality. Help us now as we come before the supper to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.